The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. If you've got a Bible, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. And if you don't have one, that is our gift to you. Take it with you, um, read it, study it, because it is the foundation of life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. All right, so we've been walking through the book of 1 Peter together over the past several weeks, and uh, we've talked about Peter's purpose in writing. I said last week, I want to keep reminding us of this purpose so that we keep everything in context. It's so important that when we read the scriptures, that we keep everything in the context that's written, and we don't just sugar pick each thing, cherry pick things out of there and make it say what we want to say, but we genuinely know what the context of the scripture is. And so I'm going to continuously read this verse to us to remind us of what Peter's purpose is. First Peter 5, 12, he says, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. So stand firm in it. That's what we're being called to do, to stand firm in the gospel, that even when adversity comes, even when trials come, we stand firm in the gospel because it is the solid foundation for our life. It's the only solid foundation for our life. And so it's important that we remember that and that we stand firm in the gospel. Remember, remember the context that Peter's writing. He's preparing the hearts of these early Christians for persecution that was on the horizon. We talked about Nero and how he was about to open up persecution to the church and uh, Peter's preparing the hearts of these people to uh, endure that persecution. And he wanted to encourage them by reminding them of the gospel, which is where we started week one, right? Week one was just a clear presentation of the gospel. Peter gives us that, and he's reminding them of what salvation is. He reminds them of the source of their salvation, that salvation is not found in works, it's not found in any other thing, but in God alone. He reminds them of the product of their salvation, that if you're truly saved, you'll have a new life. That's so important that we understand and that we get that. That, that we don't just profess Jesus with our lips and then live this ungodly life because there is no salvation if that is your life. You can't just profess Jesus with your lips and then have no change because the gospel is too powerful that it will change you. It's inevitable. We also talked about the sufficiency of salvation, that Jesus' death and resurrection was and is enough to save you. You don't need anything else. We also talked about the reward of salvation, that the reward of our salvation is not just heaven, but eternal intimacy with God, that that's what makes heaven awesome, is that we're eternally in intimacy with the Father. And then we talked about the promise of our salvation, that your salvation is eternally secure, that if you're truly a regenerate believer, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, that's the down payment of your salvation. If that's true about you, nothing can take that away. And then week two, we talked about real faith. What does real faith look like? Because we got a lot of people that profess Jesus with their lips, but what does real faith look like? We said real faith is joyful in suffering, that in the midst of suffering, real faith stands joyful in that because our hope is not in the circumstances of life. Our hope is in Jesus. We also talked about the fact that real faith is committed by God, that God loves and is worshiped by our genuine faith. We also talked about the fact that real faith yields sanctification from God, that if your faith is genuinely a God, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and is sanctifying you, making you more and more like Jesus throughout the entire life that you live. And we also talked about that real faith understands the greatness of salvation. And then last week we talked about the appropriate response to salvation, that yes, we've become Christians, we've been saved, we're regenerate, 
But there should be a response to that in our life. What does that look like? We talked about the fact that your mind should be ready, that we should set our mind and and focus on the hope of glory, that we're living for eternity. We're not living for now. We're living for eternity. We talked about the fact that uh, we should be walking in holiness, that our identity is in Christ, and we should walk in that. We talked about the fact that we should be revering God by living out our purpose, that we've been redeemed for a purpose. We talked about the fact that we should trust God in all things and walk in obedience, that real faith is obedience. That's what it looks like. And we also talked about the fact that we should be loving others, that the product of our salvation is a love for others. So living out the appropriate response to our salvation is the epitome of Christian maturity. That when we understand that we're saved and that has results of that, that that, that we're living in this appropriate response of our salvation, that is the epitome of Christian maturity. Getting our mind ready, walking in holiness, revering God, trusting in God, and loving others constantly are the marks of a mature believer. That's what maturity in Christ looks like. You don't necessarily come out of the spiritual womb reflecting those traits immediately. Through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, you grow into them. Um, when Davis was little, he's our youngest. When he was little, uh, he had this really bad speech impediment. It was like he would like growl when he talked. It was like almost like this weird like Donald Duck thing going on. He back like that, and he would like come up to you and, and say something. And when he's little bitty, it was kind of cute. He'd be like, "I want to watch Paw Patrol," and you're like, "Okay, that's cute. You're little." But then as he got older, it was like that's not as cute as it used to be. It's kind of like a little bit like worrisome and so we brought him to the doctor and they were like yeah he's not his language isn't quite where it should be at this point so we went into some speech therapy stuff and um, he would get so frustrated because we couldn't understand him he'd be trying to tell us something and we're like I don't know what you're saying man you're speaking like a different language I don't know what you want and he would get so angry Uh, and so we did speech therapy and as he grew in that he uh, he became so much more easier to deal with because we could understand him and we knew what he was wanting. So we did speech therapy to help him grow and mature in that area, right? That's an important thing. We, we get that. And we understand that growth and maturity is important, right? We, we understand that. We get that. Uh, I get that my fifth and seventh grade boys prioritize video games over responsibility. I get that. I don't necessarily like it, but I get it. Right? They're, they're fifth and seventh grade. They're kids. They're, they still have a lot of maturing to do. Now, if they're 25 and they're prioritizing video games over responsibility, then I'm going to punch them in the face. Right? Then we've got a problem, right? Because now I've got this adolescent that's 25 years old living in my house playing video games. That's not going to happen. I'll kick them out. I've already told them, 18, you're done. I have done my duty at 18, you're out. If they're 25 and still doing that, then I'm going to be concerned. Since I see it as a potential problem now, I'm teaching them to shift their priorities while still letting them be kids so that hopefully we don't end up with 25-year-olds that have misplaced priorities. And as parents, we're intervening, we're teaching, we're training now so that we get the result that we want years from now. Right? We get that as parents. We understand that maturity and growth are important. We don't want these adolescents living in our house when they're 30. Right? We don't want that. We want them to grow. We want them to be successful. We want them to be uh, adults. We want them to grow up. It's so important. We get that. And the same should be true about spiritual maturity and growth. But here's the issue. Here's the issue. We're just not seeing people growing in these areas. We're just not seeing it. In the church of today, we're not seeing people grow up, right? There there are so many professing Christians that don't have their mind right, and they're shaken by the fluctuating circumstances of life. 
There's so many Christians not walking in holiness, not living like a child of the king, so many addicted to pornography, so many committing adultery, so many valuing the things of this world over the things of God. we got so many people that are not revering God for who he is. They walk in sin and presume on the kindness and grace of God, totally ignoring the holiness and wrath of God. And we got a lot of people that don't trust in God in their daily life. They, and that's evidenced by their constant disobedience. We've got a lot of Christians who, who, are, who are not marked by Christian love, but by selfishness and arrogance. This is the modern Christian church, and it's why the modern church is so weak and ineffectual. This is why we are where we are, because we've got so many people that have not grown in their spiritual uh, life. They're, they're, they're still spiritual infants running around, or they're not really saved at all. This is the world that we live in. We've traded real, genuine spiritual growth for this facade of whitewashed moralism, and it's not enough. As long as we look good on the outside, who cares about the spiritual rot on the inside? I'll tell you who cares. God cares. God sees the heart, so external behavior modification just it, it isn't enough. It's time that the church takes spiritual growth seriously. It's time that we see it as an imperative, as something that's important in our lives and in our children's lives. Parents, listen to me. If your kid's good at sports, nobody cares. Nobody cares. If they're damned to hell, what does it matter? Your job as a parent is to help your child grow in their walk before anything else. It doesn't matter if they can write an English paper. It doesn't matter if they go to a good college if they're damned to hell. What does it matter? Your job as a parent is to disciple your child first above all other things. It's so important that we get that. We're raising generation after generation that are walking away from the church because we as parents are neglecting our responsibility to disciple our children and help them grow in their faith. It's time our church takes spiritual growth seriously. Paul talks about this when he writes to the Ephesians, Ephesians 4 verse 11. It says that he himself gave some to the apostles, some, to, uh, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching by human cunning with cleverness and the te techniques of deceit. But speaking truth and love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. part. So Paul is admonishing the Ephesians to use their gifting to help others mature in the Christian walk. He says the whole reason we have gifts to preach, teach, and care for people is to equip them to grow into maturity. So a major reason that we have immature believers in the church today is because we have abandoned our call to make disciples. At some point along the way, we distorted the mission to only making converts or even worse, growing church attendance. That's been our goal for decades. Man, we got to get a big church. We got to get everybody in the church house. Everybody's got to come. We got to invite all your friends. Get everybody in the building. That's not the goal. What have we accomplished? The goal is to make disciples, to see people come to know Jesus and grow in their faith. And if we're not doing that, we're failing. And listen to me, church, we're not doing it, we're failing. The Church of America is failing so bad in this area. Our focus has become building our own little mini kingdoms and not the kingdom. The Great Commission is to make disciples. That's our purpose, that's our calling. And it's an important one because Christian maturity hinges on it. 
If we neglect our calling, we end up with a church of spiritual infants, and that is not a healthy place to be. That's why Peter transitions into talking about spiritual growth and maturity in our text this morning. So let's read together. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Some of you are thinking, man, we're just now starting? That's true, we are just now starting. I told you I was a little lit when I walked up here. All right. It says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may what? Grow up into your salvation. If you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you if you, uh, the, to you who believe, but for all the unbelieving, the stone that bu- the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy. So Peter's given us three areas in which we need to grow as believers. Number one, grow to know what to consume. Grow to know what to consume. Look at verses one. He says, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. When I was young, I liked to eat really bad. I mean, I like to eat really bad now, but when I was young, I would eat really bad. I, in fact, there's a, <laughs> a picture I posted on the internet when our, like, we were kind of newly, newly married and our kids were super young and Becca sent me to do the grocery shopping, rookie mistake. I bought like Cheez-Its and powdered donuts and honey buns and like I didn't buy anything like really of any sustenance. I just bought all the junk. Uh, Doritos, Doritos with that spicy cheese dip. Mm. Hallelujah. I, I hadn't really eaten breakfast this morning. Honey buns, all that junk, right? But as I got older, I've realized that I'm going to pay for eating stuff like that, right? I'm gonna, if, I, if I go and just chow down on all that junk, when I step on the scale in the morning, that scale's going to say, ow, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to reach this limit of like blood pressure issues and stuff like that. There was a point where like I'd gained a bunch of weight and like I went to the, to the dentist and they were like, hey, your blood pressure is like really high. Maybe you should get that checked out. Sure enough, I was like, I was off the charts. I had to start taking medicine for that. I'm like, I'm not even, I'm like early 30s. I shouldn't be having to take a pill for my blood pressure. It's ridiculous. So I started losing some weight. I realized that if I get past a certain number on the scale, man, that's, that's a bad day. I start hurting. My back starts hurting. My blood pressure goes up. And I realized like I can't eat like that anymore because it's not good for me. Um, now, I'm not saying that I don't eat like that still sometimes. I'm just saying I learned that I'm not supposed to, right? <laughs> the older you get, the more you learn what eating bad does to your body. I learned, I learned, too, that changing your habits, if you change and you start to eat the right things, you can start to crave the right things. You can trick your brain into actually wanting stuff that's not that good if you don't eat, if you only eat that. And again, I don't always do that. 
because tacos are better than celery, but, but I do know that if I get to a certain point, I've got to start doing that. And I know that if I start doing it, I'll crave that and I'll stop craving the junk. If I stop consuming junk and start consuming the healthy stuff, I end up craving healthy stuff and being disinterested in the junk food. And some of you who are like health nuts, you get that. Like you, you've, you've lived that before. You know that, that once you make that transition, it's so much easier to maintain that because you've made that decision. And once you jump back into the nasty stuff, then you start craving the nasty stuff again. Peter's saying that we should get rid of all the stuff we once were. And like newborn infants, we should desire, or other translations say, crave the pure milk of the word. What does that mean? If you've ever, if you've ever had a baby, you know exactly what that means, right? Our kids would see a bottle and immediately start going nuts. They'd be like, right? They'd start crying. You put that bottle in their face and they're like, give it to me, right? There's this insatiable desire. There's this, this sense of urgency, right? They, they eat like two hours ago. You put the bottle in front of their face. They're like, ah, and there's like this, like they've never eaten before. There's this sense of urgency. Like I got to have that now or I'm going to die, right? Why? Because it's, it's what gave them life. It's what sustained them. Right? That, that milk is what gives them life. It's what sustains them. And even as a little baby who doesn't know anything else, they get that. They know that when that bottle pops up, that's what makes their belly feel better. That's what gives them sustenance. That's what gives them life. This is what Peter's talking about. He's saying we should crave the word of God like babies crave milk with a sense of urgency, like your life depends on it. Why? So you can grow up in your salvation. Consuming the word of God is what you need to grow if you've already tasted that the Lord is good, then you know he brings life. And if you really know and believe that, you're going to crave his word because that brings life as well. What does it look like to crave the word of God? What does that really look like? Because I think it's really easy for us to think, well, yeah, I crave the word of God. Of course I do. That's, well, I'm a Christian. Why wouldn't I? But let's look at what that really looks like. Psalm 119, verse 25. It says, my life is down in the dust. Give me life through your word. I told you about my life and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Help me understand the meaning of your precepts so that I can meditate on your wonders. I am weary from grief. Strengthen me through your word. Keep me from the way of deceit and graciously give me your instruction. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set your ordinances before me. I cling to your decrees, Lord. Do not put me to shame. I pursue the way of your commands for you broaden my understanding. When we read that, it's evident that the writer here is craving the word of God, right? There's a sense of urgency, like I need more of this. I need more of this because it gives me life. I'm going through all this stuff in life, but I need this to get me through it. That's the heart of the text, an urgent, insatiable hunger for the word of God. Why? Because he, he, he gives us some reasons in the text. First, he says his life is down in the dust. You ever felt like that? Your life is down in the dust? He's dried up, he's devoid of joy and hope, but he says life is found in the word, he knows that. And when life seems devoid of joy and hope, the writer here goes to the word for fulfillment and for sustenance. He also says that he can meditate on the wonders of God. You wanna know who God is, you wanna have a more intimate relationship with God, he's giving you so much here through his word so that you can know him. He also says he's weary from grief and understands that strength is found in the word. Maybe you're weary from grief. Maybe you've had a rough go of it. You want to find joy? It's found in these pages. It's found in intimacy with the Father. 
finally says that an understanding of truth is found in the word. It's, it's in the word of God that we find an immovable truth that we can build our life on that will keep us from deceit. In a world where everything's relative, this is truth. This is what can stand the test of time. This is what you can build your life on. There's so many things out there that will deceive you and distract you and pull you away. But this is an immovable foundation. Build your life on it. As we read this passage, there's no doubt that the writer was passionate about consuming the word of God. It's where he found life and understanding of God, strength to endure life's trials and truth to build his life on. And because of that, he has an urgent craving for the word. My question would be, is that true about you? Is that true about you? Listen to me. If all you get from this is what we do here on these properties, you're not craving it. This isn't enough. This must be just like a little booster shot to get you through the week. This ain't enough. If this is all the word that you get, it's not enough. It will not sustain you. It will not carry you over. That's so, why so many of us are weak and not strong to live out and, and walk in this Christian life because one hour a week on a Sunday is just not enough. Even if you add in a Bible study and a Wednesday night equip class, it's still not enough. You should be in this constantly because it gives life constantly there should be some kind of religious thing like okay I'm going to read it for 30 minutes every day because I want to check that box no that's not how this works if you're hungry for it you don't have to set a timer for it I don't have to set a time in my life to eat lunch I'm going to eat lunch right I don't have to set a timer for dinner it's not like oh man it's 5 o'clock I better go eat no at 5 o'clock I'm like hey babe what are we eating for dinner what can I cook you for dinner That's a lie. I'm, I shouldn't do that. I'm sorry. I did volunteer to cook dinner the other night, and I, I, got, I went and bought us food from somewhere. My question is, is, is this true about you? Do you crave the word of God, or do you even look at it apart from Sunday morning gatherings? If this is all the word you get each week, then, then let's be honest. You don't crave it. You're filling yourself with the things of this world. And Peter says a mark of Christian maturity is a hunger and craving for God's word. If we're, if we're mature in Christ, if we're mature in our faith, then we're going to recognize that this is what brings life, and we're going to hunger for it. The second thing is he says that we need to grow in is a, to grow to know what you're supposed to do. Look at verse 4. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to, a, uh, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So I've watched teenagers grow a lot doing student ministry for so long, uh, and there's there's like two different types of teenagers, and maybe some of you can relate to this. There's, there's some teenagers that know exactly what they're supposed to do with their life. They graduate high school, they go straight to college, and they have this like drive to do exactly what they know that they're supposed to do. And then there's some that graduate their senior year, and they're completely overwhelmed with the idea that they have to make a decision about what they're going to do for the rest of their life. 
And they kind of have like this panicky feeling. Their heart starts beating fast. You can tell as, as graduation gets closer, they're not as excited about graduation. Or maybe it's that they're super excited about graduation, but as soon as they throw that hat up in the air, it's like this realization of like, now what? Like, what am I supposed to do with my life now? Right? And, and they get really overwhelmed with that idea, and they don't know what to do. So a lot of times, they just don't do anything. They'll like go get a part-time job and live in mom and dad's basement or, or back room or whatever, and, and, and they don't really have a plan. They don't know what to do, so they, they kind of just... They kind of just stop and wait a few years until they finally figure something out. And there's a lot of Christians that are exactly like this. They come to Christ, they grow in their ability to overcome external sins and spiritual disciplines, but they don't really know what they're supposed to do with their new life. So they just stop and do nothing. You weren't saved to do nothing. You weren't saved to do nothing. That's not how this works. Now, there's some complexity to what Peter's saying. First of all, we need to understand how God interacted with his people before Christ, right? We know that there was this temple, there was this spiritual house of God, there were, there were sacrifices that were being made by priests. The normal average person did not have the ability to come into communion with God, and so there were the priests that did that on behalf of the people. They would sacrifice animals to atone for the sins of the people. This is how God interacted with his people before Christ, But now that Christ has come into the picture and become the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins, Peter's saying now the spiritual house of God is the church. There is no temple that you have to come to. This is not the house of God. This building, you are the house of God. You are the house of God. You are the spiritual house of God. Paul talks about this as well in Ephesians 2.19. He says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Jesus is the living stone. Not only that, but he is the cornerstone. He's the immovable foundation that this new spiritual house is built on. Without Jesus, it all falls apart. Without Christ, none of this matters. He's what holds it all together. And this is important to remember because it keeps us in our place. When a church sees success, sometimes it's easy to start thinking that charisma and leadership is what brings that success. No. This spiritual house rests on the back of Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. We need him. He's the only one that can bear the weight of it all. And if you try to put that on anyone else or anything else, it would crumble. Jesus alone can be the cornerstone. But not only that, it keeps us focused on what the mission is. We're not building church attendance. We're not building an organization of people that hang out on a weekly basis. We're building a holy temple. And our, God, our, our goal is genuine conversions, not just attendance. That's why it's so important to not just invite your friends to the weekly worship service, but to actually share the gospel with them. It's so important that we understand what our goal is, what our purpose is. It's not to build a church attendance. It is to build the kingdom of God. It is to build a holy temple. And that doesn't happen without people coming to know Christ. That is our purpose. Jesus is the foundation of the new spiritual house, and we're a part of it. We're living stones as well. Christ is building on his foundation, and we're being built for a purpose. What is 
the purpose. Peter says to be a holy priesthood that offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As a believer, you have access to God. You can go to him and offer up these sacrifices. We don't need priests to do that on our behalf anymore. We don't need that. You are a holy priesthood. You now can come to the Father and offer up sacrifices to him. We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As a believer, your job is to live in intimacy with God and lay your life down for his glory. That's what your life should be about. In light of this context, Romans 12 makes so much sense, right? Romans 12, 1, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Paul's urging the Romans to lay their life down on an altar as a spiritual sacrifice. This is the kind of sacrifice that is pleasing to God. God's not pleased with anything short of complete surrender. Nothing else is pleasing to him. You can't come to him and be like, well, I'm going to give you a little bit part of my life and it's going to be a compartmentalized faith where uh, Jesus is this part, my job is this part, and my family is this part, and, and, and it's just this, this compartmentalized aspect of my life. No, that's not pleasing to God. He says, lay it all down. Your whole life should be a sacrifice to him. And that's the only sacrifice that, pl- that is pleasing to him. To be a living sacrifice means that you lay down your own desires and ambitions for your life. That means that Jesus takes priority over your politics. It means that Jesus takes priority over your family, over your education, over the lake or the deer lease or the beach. It takes precedence and priority over your career and finances. Living sacrifice means you lay everything down at his feet. And you say, do with it what you will, Lord. This is your life. I don't know this in my notes, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. I, I've seen over the years lots of kids either want to serve in ministry or um, they, they, they want to give their life to Christ and, and walk in that. And I've seen a lot of times where parents are like, no, you don't want to do that. There's no money in that. What do you, what, what's your backup plan going to be? Listen to me this morning. What are you teaching your kid when you say that? That Jesus isn't enough? That he won't sustain them? That's exactly what it means to be a living sacrifice. To say regardless of what, what seems logical, I lay it all at your feet, God. It's yours. Do with it what you will. Right? And that includes your children. You should offer your kids down before God and say, Lord, do with what you will with them. They're yours. Your finances, every aspect of your life. There's there's this really horrible thing in this Christian life, in this Christian culture that we have, where, where people are trying to compartmentalize everything. And I'm telling you, that's not sacrifice. Coming to church on Sunday, serving in the kids' building, and coming on Wednesday night, that's not sacrifice. Sacrifice is literally everything. That's the only pleasing sacrifice that God is willing to accept is that when you come in and you lay your whole life down, every aspect of it, say it's yours, it's not mine. And it's all or nothing. A mature believer understands this. A mature believer has grown in this area. They understand their role in the gospel story. You're to live your life for his glory by sacrificing it all to make his name famous. That's your purpose in life to proclaim the goodness of God with your life. 
I don't care where you work or what you do. In the end, that specific job doesn't matter a whole lot in the grand scheme of eternity. But if you use that for his glory, then it does. Your life should be lived for his glory, to make his name famous. You use every opportunity you have to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ to all who will listen. That is your job in life. That's the calling that God has placed on your life. Finally, number three, grow to know who you are. Look at verse six. It says, for it stands in scripture, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come, upon, uh, come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They, they were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received God, or you not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A while back, I was listening to a podcast of a guy who um, he adopted several kids over the years um, from different countries and different cultures. And even though he adopted them really young, they still struggled with their identity. They found themselves constantly exploring the culture they came from and wanted to go back to where they came from. Even though he had raised them, shown them love, and cared for them, they still, almost every one of them, wanted to go back to where they were. Peter's saying that some rejected Christ. He's the stone that the builders rejected. With, with, with or without their belief, Christ is still the cornerstone. And rather than becoming the door to salvation that they need, he becomes a stumbling block to salvation. There is no way to salvation apart from Christ. There is no way. He's the only way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. If you reject him, you reject salvation. If you reject Jesus, you reject salvation. You can't reject the cornerstone and still be part of the spiritual house of God. Your disbelief and your disobedience becomes the barrier to your salvation. And this becomes your identity. You're marked by disbelief and disobedience. Peter says that believers are different though. Your identity is different than that of unbelievers. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his possession. But what does all that mean? What does it mean to be a chosen race? God called you out of darkness and into light. You didn't choose that for yourself. He opened your eyes to see truth. The spirit of the living God enlightened you to the gospel. Now you're a part of his family. And that identity takes priority over any other segregate of people. That identity of being a chosen race is more important than any other segregate of people that we like to divide over. So you're not conservative or liberal first, you're, chosen, you're a chosen race. You're not black, white, Hispanic, or Asian first, you're his chosen race. You're not rich or poor first, you're his chosen race. Paul talks about in Galatians 3, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is your identity, that is who you are. You're a chosen race, you're his people. That's your identity, that's the only segregate that matters. We don't divide on the other lines because they don't matter in comparison to being his chosen race. 
Not only that, he says that you're a royal priesthood. What does that mean? You don't have to come to God with hesitation. That's what that means. He welcomes you into communion with himself. You don't need me or a priest to intercede for you. You don't have to come and make confessionals to me. You are a royal priesthood. Ephesians 3.11 says this is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Through Christ you can have bold and confident access to the Father. Peter also says that we're a holy nation. What does that mean? We're a set apart people. We're called to be holy. Like we talked about last week, this is who you are as a regenerate believer. You are a holy nation. You don't look or live like the rest of the world. You've been saved out of that and set apart. We're a city on a hill that can't be hidden. And our holiness is a reminder to the world that Jesus makes things new. Right? You can't come to Christ and continue to walk in sin and live in sin. That's not how this thing works. Because the Holy Spirit and salvation is so much more powerful than that. we got to acknowledge that and realize that, that we are a holy nation. God has taken us and set us apart from the world. We are not in the world. We don't live like the world. That's not our identity. We are separate. We are holy. Ephesians 1.4, for he chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. So the world may live in sexual sin and adultery, but the church has been made new. The world may live in selfishness, but the church has been made new. The world may live in pride and arrogance, but the church has been made new. You are a holy nation set apart before the foundations of the world to proclaim the goodness and grace of God. And we do that with our proclamations, but we also do that with our lifestyles. You can't go preach Jesus, but live like the world. It doesn't make sense. That makes you a hypocrite. This is so important. You need to know that you are a holy nation. You're not who you once were. You are new. And finally, Peter says that we're a people of his possession. What does that mean? It means that you're not your own. You have been bought with a price. Christ gave his life for you. And if you really get that and have made him Lord and you have laid your life down on that altar and surrendered your life to him, then you gave up your life. Paul writes about this in the, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Listen to me this morning. You are God's. You are not your own. Your life is not your own anymore. You gave it up. If you were a Christian this morning, you were not your own. You laid it down on the altar when you made him the Lord of your life, and you were no longer your own. And that understanding changes how we live our lives. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you understand this? Does your life look like this? Have you, have you crucified your old desires and ambitions and traded them for God's purposes in your life? What we're talking about here is stewardship. Your life isn't your own, but you are a steward of the life God has given you. For you to be his people, for, for you to be his, means you are stewarding your life for his glory. He's giving you a life. How you use it indicates whether you get this or not. You only get this one life, then it's eternity. How you steward this life will either glorify God or not. 
So how you steward your time, either that's glorifying God or it's not. How you steward your family, that's glorifying God or it's not. How you steward your finances, that glorifies God or it doesn't. Your career, your marriage, all of those things, every aspect of your, of your life, either is bringing glory to God or it's not. And you're a steward of that. You don't own that. And that goes so against our culture and what we've been taught, right? We've been taught we work hard, we earn it, it's ours, and no one should tell me how I live with it. But no, if you're a Christian, you've given all of that right up. And he becomes Lord, and it's all his, and you recognize that you're just a steward of what he's given you. The maturing Christian has grown and is growing in this area. They understand who they are in Christ. They understand that they're a chosen race, that they're a royal priesthood, that they're a holy nation, that they're a people of his possession. They get that, and it shapes their outcomes. If you get it, it will shape your outcome. They don't go back to their old self because they have found their new identity in the new birth that Christ has given them. Christian maturity is important. We must be growing constantly. And the reason I say that is because that growth isn't a product of the will. Spiritual growth is not a product of the will. It's the product of, a, of the spirit inside of you. If you're truly saved, the Spirit will be sanctifying you. It's not that he might. The Bible's clear. He will be sanctifying you. So the question is, are you growing? Are you growing? Are you growing in your understanding of what to consume? Do you hunger for the Word of God? Do you find life in its pages? Are you growing in your understanding of what you're supposed to be doing do you live your life for the glory of God? Is your life marked by, by that mission? Is Christ the foundation of your life on which everything else rests? Or have you compartmentalized your faith as just one aspect of your life? Your life's mission is to glorify God in all things. And that's the only acceptable sacrifice. All of it. Are you growing in your understanding of who you are? Do you understand that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his possession, Church, are you growing in these areas? If the answer is no, there's a few things that are possible. One, maybe you haven't been discipled. Maybe it's just ignorance. You don't know what it truly means to walk in Christ. Two, maybe you're a Christian, you know it, but you're miserable because you're not walking, you're not growing, you're not living out the Christian life, and the Holy Spirit is just reaming your heart with conviction. Or three, maybe, maybe you're not truly saved. Maybe you, you've got the church religious thing down, you've got the Christian culture thing, but you've never truly surrendered your life to Jesus. Growth is so incredibly important. It's so incredibly important. We as a church should be using our spiritual gifts to help one another grow in our faith. We should be intentional about helping one another grow. We should be using the gifts that God has given us to challenge one another and help each other grow. That's why we do things like discipleship. That's why we do things like growth groups and equip classes. Those aren't there just because we've got to have a program. Those are there for a purpose, to help you grow in your walk with Christ. 
So this morning again, are you growing in these areas? Are you a growing Christian? Are you a stagnant Christian? Are you even a Christian? That's the question, the, the questions that you have to answer in your own heart. Would you stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? I'm going to give you some time to kind of process where you're at in all of this. Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That means that we should be constantly evaluating the fruit in our life. It's not that we doubt our salvation, it's that we are looking for the fruit of our salvation. Because you can profess Jesus with your lips. You can come down and walk an aisle, say a prayer, get dunked in a tank, and never truly surrender in your heart to Jesus. And if that's true about you, my prayer, my hope is the Holy Spirit is revealing to you your lostness and showing you the pathway to salvation. But your eyes are being enlightened to the truth of the gospel this morning. And if that's you this morning... Scripture's clear. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. When we come to, to, to Christ with repentance of our sins, we recognize that we're a sinner. And our sin separates us from a holy and perfect God. And what we deserve is the wrath of God. But Jesus took on that wrath of God when he was on a cross. And he defeated death when he rose again. And when we come to him with repentance and we put our faith in that reality of who he is, we cry out to him and surrender our lives to him and make him the Lord of our life. The scripture is clear that we will be saved. So this morning, if you've never truly done that, if you've never truly surrendered your life to Christ, my hope and prayer is that in this moment right now with the music playing and everybody's head bowed and eyes closed, that in this moment you are crying out to God and asking him to forgive you of your sins and to be the Lord of your life. And that's true about you, man, we would love to talk to you. We'd love to talk to you to help you make sure that we answer your questions to the best of our ability. That we also help you take that next step towards growth, whatever that means for you. It's important that you don't do your spiritual walk alone. That's why God, God gave us the church so that we can walk in, and grow in community, so that we can challenge one another and walk together through this spiritual life. It's so important that you don't do it alone. And so if Christ is calling you in this moment, the Holy Spirit's convicting you and, and calling you into salvation this morning, you're crying out to God saying, save me, God. If that's true about you, then please let us have a conversation with you. And, and what that can look like is that in a moment, the band's gonna sing, there's gonna be a couple of people that are standing down here in front. You can come grab them by the hand and have that discussion with them. They're going to fill out a card. We're going to call you during the week and meet with you and talk to you about that decision. Or maybe if you're like, I'm not coming down front, that's okay. There's a card in front of you. Fill it out and drop it in one of the black boxes in the, in the hallways or in the foyer on your way out. And we'll call you this week and talk to you about it. But don't try to do it alone. If God is calling you to salvation, let us help you. This morning, if you're a believer, maybe you fall into one of those other categories. Maybe you've never been discipled. Maybe you genuinely know that you've surrendered your life to Jesus, but your, your life doesn't look like what we've been talking about. There's not been growth. 
Maybe that's because no one's ever discipled you and walked along with you and showed you what it looks like to truly live this Christian life. If that's true about you, then please, again, let us have a conversation with you. We want to walk you through that. We want to put someone and pair someone up with you and, and, and allow them to, to help walk you through what it looks like to really live this Christian life, to keep you accountable and challenge you and provoke you in the ways that you should be provoked. And so again, if that's true about you, you can come down and talk to one of these people in front, find me after the service, fill out a card and write down, I want to be discipled on it, whatever. Find a way to get in contact with us so that we can show you how to get into a discipleship relationship. And if you fall in the other category of, yes, you're a Christian, yes, you know what it looks like to live the Christian life, and for whatever reason you've wavered off and the Holy Spirit is screaming in your heart, hey, you are not on the right path. Get back where you're supposed to be. And right now you're just miserable because you know you're rebelling against the Spirit's calling your life. My prayer, my hope for you this morning is that you would choose to surrender and follow in obedience because that's where life is found. What we've been talking about is, is this, this real, genuine Christian life. And Jesus said that he came to offer us life and to offer it abundantly. The abundant life is not found in the things of this world. The abundant life is found in communion with God, in spiritual growth through the power and sanctification of the Holy Spirit. So that's you this morning. My prayer and my hope for you is that you will surrender in repentance this morning. There's altars here in front. You can come down as the band sings and, and pray and repent and ask God to change your heart. Father God, we thank you for this time together. God, we pray that your spirit would move, that you will use this time, this word this morning to change our hearts, to convict us where we're sinful, to, to help us to grow into our faith. God, I pray that you, that you would challenge us this morning to grow, that we would see growth in this church, that we would see growth in the church as a whole remember our identity and who we are and all these things we've been talking about. God, I pray that you would be glorified in our lives. God, move in this time. I'm sure we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening, and we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.